Hi, and welcome to Independent Claws, Episode 2. I'm your host, Sparf, or Chris, if you prefer. Today, we're going to discuss historical fiction and historically inspired fiction with an anthropomorphic twist. There are millions of interesting stories that come down to us from the collective history of humanity that have more fascinating twists and turns than many fantasy novels I could name. The first question you want to ask yourself is this. Do you want to write a story set specifically in a time period in human history, or do you want to adapt elements of that setting either in an alternate history or in a new world inspired by the old? The amount of research required for each of those is different. If you wish to write a story in a specific time period, then the research may need to be more meticulous. There are readers who will find your book interesting due to the setting, and then one unchecked, incorrect fact will, at the minimum, have them put your book down and not pick it back up. As Indiana Jones once said, we cannot afford to take mythology at face value. So first, let's ask this question. What draws you to the time period you want to write about? Often the kernel of a story is slipped into our minds by hearing another story. One of my personal favorites, for example, is the story of the death of Marcus Licinius Crassus, one of the members of the First Triumvirate with Julius Caesar and Pompey the Great. Crassus had, for years, been trying to get some military victories in order to be seen as a legitimate statesman like his colleagues, so he finally got permission from the Senate to raise legions, and he marched off into Persia. He got lied to by some local quote-unquote guides who were on the Parthian payroll and ended up in a trap, completely surrounded. His legions were slaughtered, and he along with them. Now, that's a fascinating story. Usually, unless you're doing some deeper reading, Roman history is limited to a cursory overview of the most important things and events and people. When you are drawn to set a story in a particular setting that is historical, you have to ask yourself how historical you want it to be. If you are interested in a sci-fi epic, then ancient Constantinople might not be the best place to set the story itself. But what about a spacefaring culture, an empire whose reach once covered the known galaxy and has slowly been pushed farther and farther back by adherents of another system of beliefs? Hmm? Maybe it's the situation that the characters are in, or maybe it's the aesthetic. Steampunk as a genre grows out of a love of Victorian and Edwardian aesthetics. Let your readers know what is interesting in that time period. Why should your story be set there and not in 2016? In much the same way, the answer to why are they animals is usually, fundamentally, because we want them to be, your answer to why you're writing about this time period can be because it's cool, but really, you have to earn it. If I can take the story and strip out the setting and replace it with a contemporary college setting, then you haven't done enough to integrate the setting into your story. The questions I often ask myself when writing a historical piece are, how important is class in this society? The farther back in time you go, the more important class distinctions seem to become. Rigid class structures are a solid way that an aristocracy maintains their hold on society. From the Victorians 
to the southern planters, all the way back to the Roman, equestrian, and senatorial classes, those divides do exist in society. They were often more open in the past than they are in the present day. You don't often hear about American aristocracy, but we have one. It's just that it's not based necessarily on inherited title. Number two, is species related to class or ethnicity in a meaningful way? Now, often we gloss over ethnicity and regional origin in our furry stories because we have species as an analog. Some furry writers like to use it as ethnicity and others shy away from that. A tiger, to me, in Victorian London is likely to be a foreigner with different customs to the native species of the Isles. Can that be a source of class conflict? Three, how does society change if it encompasses multiple species? It is difficult to talk about interspecies relationships now, thanks to the runaway success of Zootopia, because we worry that everything is going to be seen as pulling from that world. However, they did some amazing things that sometimes we as writers neglect to think of. Species accommodations. How do they work in a historical context? We once again come back to class for this, but are certain species higher status than others? Now, Obviously, those species would be accommodated in a society more than the lower classes. Alternately, do historical events become altered if a species-specific trait is involved. For example, I would imagine that if you use wolves as the analog for Romans, because they are closely tied in their mythology, their history, Romulus and Remus were suckled by a mother wolf, if you have a canine, it becomes immeasurably harder to poison them. Because if you go to poison a canine's food, an anthropomorphic canine, they are likely to smell something wrong in the food, the almond scent of whichever poison or whatever it might be. They're going to smell it, so it becomes more difficult to assassinate them in a historically accurate way unless there exist poisons that don't have a smell. Perhaps those do exist these little things you have to think of. When you're choosing a historical setting, you do have to determine how much research you plan to do. If your setting is non-fantasy, non-science fiction, meaning there's no real magic to speak of and no advanced technology, it likely means that you are writing something that is intended to be more straightforward and thus would need to be as accurate as possible to the setting. If you remember last episode's warning about paralysis by analysis, it rears its ugly head again right here. You have to balance the need for accuracy with the needs of the story, and whatever you do, stick to your guns on it. There is a furry I know whose background is in medieval history. If you mention the title Braveheart, the poor fellow starts foaming at the mouth and twitching. Why? Because there are so many wide historical inaccuracies in that movie that it's hard to tell where exactly to start. In the case of Braveheart, the story that Randall Wallace and Mel Gibson wanted to tell took precedence over the accuracy to real events of history that the film was based on. My undergraduate degree was in theater and history, and I specialized in classical history up until the fall of Constantinople in 1453. 
watching the movie Gladiator should cause me to break out in hives. For me, though, the story itself can push past inaccuracies as long as it isn't being taught in an educational setting as the truth. Something that's far closer to Roman history and still questionable in places is I, Claudius, uh, starring Derek Jacobi as Claudius and uh, John Hurt as Caligula. I recommend you check that out if you're interested in how it can be done well while still taking historical liberties. It gets a little easier in fantastical settings, because you aren't as tied to the world as it is. You can tinker with the world, fixing things or altering events or parts of the world to suit the needs of your story. So where should you worry about realism? That is honestly a personal matter, but my suggestion is this. Find a point where the average reader will not notice the flaws, and then go a few steps beyond that. You don't have to do enough research to write a thesis paper on the topic, but your reality should extend just around that last corner where the reader won't notice that you've pinned the fabric down with thumbtacks. Language is also very important. This all cycles back to class. The more I think about it, the more Ash's commentary on Marxist literary theory seems to apply, but I digress. This all cycles back to class and the background of your characters, but even the lower classes in Victorian England had a different vernacular than the lower classes in the U.S. in the 1960s. The slang used, the references made, the idiomatic expressions, those are all things that are readily researchable thanks to the efforts of language nerds everywhere. They are fantastic, and you should all raise a glass to them. You can also read stories that were written contemporaneously with the setting you're writing, if possible. The language and turns of phrase there will inform your writing. If you're writing in Victorian, it would not hurt you to read some Charles Dickens. As painful as Dickens can sometimes be, it still might inform the language you use, not only in the dialogue, but also in the narrative. If you are writing a first-person perspective, or if you're writing a very tight third-person perspective, where the thoughts and the narrative really ought to be the character's words, that will inform what you write. When I wrote my story for Fang 6, the theme of which was Victorian romance, I got a note back from the editor that essentially said, all your characters change class repeatedly in the dialogue. Go through and fix it for consistency. And it's all because I didn't pay close enough attention to the dialogue and the status of my characters in the first place. Now there is one other thing about writing in a historical setting. Prejudice and bigotry. It existed then just as it exists now, sometimes worse, always more openly. In Victorian England, for example, you could be sentenced to years at hard labor for what they termed gross indecency, meaning being caught in a homosexual affair. The closer you are hewing to the reality of history, the more often you will run into problems where even your best characters, your most enlightened and likable characters, may be prone to spouting off something bigoted. Some people will argue that that's just the way life is, or was in this case, and that to hide that is glossing over the facts. Now to that, I say we are already writing anthropomorphic fiction in the modern day. We are 
already not being historically accurate unless there's a race of six-foot-tall fox people that I'm unaware of. My stance is that you can tweak those reactions down or remove them completely from some characters. You will often get accused of a protagonist or supporting character being more enlightened than their times would allow. Now, to that I say, each person is unique. There very well could have been one person who felt this way, even if society did not. It's important that we look at what we write in such a way that we can tell the story that we want to tell while giving the flavor of history, but if you're writing a gay romance in Victorian England, there are things you really can't have in your story that we in the modern day would take for granted. There's a phrase in theatrical costuming, and it's especially prevalent in shops at universities where our budgets were more limited. The phrase is, suggest the period without becoming a slave to the period. What it meant is that the costume needed to look to the casual audience member as if it belonged to the appropriate time period, but it needed to be made more quickly, less expensively, and much more easy to don or remove than an authentic garment would allow. The same principle follows in writing fiction that has a historical element to it. Now, research, as I have mentioned, is pretty important, the more real-world elements you include. But how do you go about it? First things first. This is a core principle. Wikipedia is a dreadful place to pull factual information from. But it is very useful for two things. It is useful to provide an overview of a topic, and it is useful for providing you with references to books that may have the information you are seeking. The best sources are academic ones, written by people who have studied and researched in the area of history that you're writing about. One way to find those is to reach out to history professors who are teaching classes in the appropriate period and asking for a copy of their syllabus. Their syllabus will often have a list of textbooks, and history textbooks, if you are taking specialized classes, are often just academic works focusing on a topic. You certainly don't want to bother with a general survey history course textbook. That would be useless. But if you are writing in the Byzantine Empire, then the two-volume set of Vasiliev and a copy of Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire would both be immensely useful. Some of the professors may even be willing to talk to you about specific questions you may have, but you should never assume that that will be the case. Please remember that nobody owes you their time. I have gotten a great deal of mileage out of history podcasts. There's no shortage of amateur historians out there podcasting. I will recommend a couple as prime examples of the form, but there are countless others, and I don't presume to know them all. First... This is the first one that I listened to, The History of Rome by Mike Duncan. It was the first history podcast I listened to. He covers everything from the mythical founding of the city up until the fall of the Western Empire in 476. The History of Byzantium by Robin Pearson is ongoing currently. It covers the latter half of the Roman Empire, which is sometimes called the Byzantine Empire. 
and it will go until the Byzantine Empire's fall in 1453. Revolutions, also by Mike Duncan, is subdivided into seasons uh, based upon which revolution the host is covering at the time. He has covered the French Revolution, the English Civil Wars, the American Revolution, the Haitian Revolution. He is currently, as of this recording, working on the South American, Spanish-American independence under Simon Bolivar. You can find all of those on iTunes, on the Google Play Store, I believe, and as well as Stitcher and a few other minor podcasting apps. Now, one thing I haven't covered is local history. Local history, unless you live in a major urban center, is not going to be readily available in the average history book or encyclopedia. If you want that kind of information, you're going to have to dig a little deeper for it, but it can usually be found. People do, after all, take a great deal of pride in their hometowns, and there is often some manner of chronicling that is done. If you are setting your story within living memory, then so much the better. You might actually be able to ask questions of some of the older people there in town to see what you can learn. There are also historical societies in some areas that can tell you wonderful stories about a region. In my home county, for example, um, I know about the story of the death of Daniel Boone's son just over the mountain in a raid. That's not a story that's really going to make the history books besides a footnote, but it's a fascinating little story. Another thing, for example, is that in my county, there is a road called the Devil's Race Path. And nobody of my father's generation could explain to me why it was called that. It was just assumed that that's where drag racers would go and they would race their cars off of the main roads. What it really was is that this road led out to one of the county's few houses of ill repute. So, hence, the Devil's Race Path. Now, I want to expand on something I said earlier about research and realism. I have a philosophy about research and writing. That philosophy is that if it can be made correct easily, then you have no excuse not to do so. As an example familiar to those who have asked me to beta read for them in the past, Joe Average Citizen will often call the little metal containers that hold ammunition and that one slides into a gun clips. A person trained in the use of firearms, especially a soldier or a law enforcement officer, is highly unlikely to do so. The proper term is magazine. I put down a copy of Halo, The Fall of Reach that I was reading to get a feel for popcorny military sci-fi, and I nearly threw it across the room when the Spartan soldiers repeatedly called them clips. That is an easy fix that the author did not make because no one noticed it. It's a common enough thing they obviously had read it and seen it used in other science fiction or in movies and assumed that they knew. Even if you think you know something, it pays to check it out before committing to it. That's something you likely cannot expect your editor to do for you. They probably know less about the setting than you do. Also, if your character is an expert at something, your level of research for that thing is going to have to be higher by necessity. Even if all the details of your research don't make it into your story, and they probably should not, knowing you've done the work will inform the rest of your writing. 
Now, I'd like to break for a book recommendation. This one is not a furry novel, but it is very well regarded in the fantasy community. It is an erotic alternate history fantasy set in a version of Our World's Europe. It is called Cushiel's Dart by Jacqueline Carey. Now, this is the book blurb. In a kingdom born of angels, Phaedra is an anguisette, cursed or blessed to find pleasure in pain. Sold to the court of night-blooming flowers, her fate as a beautiful but anonymous courtesan was sealed. Her bond was purchased by the nobleman Anafiel Delaunay, who recognized the scarlet moat in Phaedra's eye as the rare mark of one touched by a powerful deity. Under Delaunay's patronage, she is trained in history, politics, language, and the use of the body and the mind as the ultimate weapon of subterfuge in a dangerous game of courtly intrigue. Guided into the bedchambers of Teradange's most influential nobles, Phaedra uncovers a conspiracy against the throne so vast that even her teacher cannot see the whole of it. As her nation is besieged by invading hordes from the north, the most unthinkable threat to her beloved home comes from traitors within. Betrayed and blindsided by her own longings, only Phaedra and her trusted bodyguard Jocelyn are left to cross borders and warring armies in a race to stop the final blow from falling. I have read the entire series of these novels, and I will highly recommend them to those who are fans of erotic fantasy. You can pick them up in most bookstores as well as online via Barnes & Noble or Amazon in ebook form. If you are interested in seeing how furry authors have written in historical time periods, uh, Fang Volume 6, as I mentioned before, is a Victorian setting, Fang 7 was Vegas Through the Ages, and Trick or Treat Volume 2 was themed as Historical Halloween. Full disclosure, I have stories in each of those books, but I receive no royalty payments from sales. Currently, I am still working towards my goals for the RAR Write-A-Thon, which continues apace. I am sitting at 6,000 words of my 20,000-word goal. I am asking for pledges to go towards the workshop. Funds raised will go to support the 2017 RAR Retreat. If you would like to donate to incentivize either myself or some of the other writers to meet our goals, you may do so via the PayPal button on my page, chriswilliamsauthor.com, or via the main site at wat.rar.community, that's w-a-t dot r-a-w-r dot community. If you would like to suggest a topic for the podcast, or if you have further questions on a topic, or even all new questions, you may reach me via email at podcast at chriswilliamsauthor.com, or via Twitter at Claus Podcast. Until next time, let nothing stop you from writing.